This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Good afternoon. This is our Tax Tuesday coming from Anderson. And I'm Elliot Thomas, manager of the tax advisors here at Anderson, joined by our CFO, Jeff Webb. Hello. And this is where, as Toby says, we bring the tax knowledge to the masses. So this is kind of driven by your questions. We pick out a few questions. We got 11 today that we'll go through. And uh, of course, through the chat, people will be uh, coming in. And please, uh, if you would, submit your questions uh, through actually the, um, what do we do? The, the question section. We have a question section on Tax Tuesday. It's a little bit different, like I say, than the uh, uh, Zoom meetings that we do. So we do have a group that will answer your questions consisting of some of our CPAs, our EAs. We got Dana, we got Dutch, we got Pio, we got Troy. Uh, bookkeeping, all kinds of, uh, of resources there to help answer some of your questions. And uh, so we'll get started uh, right away. First of all, uh, the rules, if you could ask it through the Q&A uh, feature. If you have any questions, please submit them through the email. Email questions to taxtuesday at andersonadvisors.com. That's where we get the questions that we'll be asking today. If you needed more detailed response, please feel free to uh, uh, become a platinum client or a tax client, and we'll be able to assist you with that. Uh, we try and make it fast, fun, educational. Uh, try and we just want to, it's our way of giving back a little bit of education and help to our clients. And we appreciate uh, you joining us today. So we'll go through, first of all, the opening questions, just walk through the questions that we'll be answering today. First of all, can you please explain the difference between an LLC, a C Corp, and an S Corp? Can an LLC also be a C or an S Corp? I understand that C Corps and S Corps are tax elections, but are they also a type of entity? Very good question. Very popular question. We get asked a lot. Next for an HSA, uh, that's a health savings account, are the limits for contributions a monthly or annual amount? On irs.gov, the limit is listed as 3200 for single and 7200 for family. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Number three, my accountant thinks I should switch from an S-Corp to a Schedule C, that's a, a sole proprietorship on the 1040, because my profits are below $80,000 to $90,000 and the S-Corp is expensive and I'm just one person, so I do not want to grow any bigger and I'm happy with these sales. My question is, what is the best for me, not the company? Well, what happens if I switch? What is better for retirement and Social Security as I am 56 years old? Next, can you convert a personal vehicle into a business vehicle if you only use it for business? What if you only own one vehicle? Can you deduct mileage, gas, or anything else? Next, uh, can I reduce my W-2 taxes for my job by owning rental property? Kind of a broad question there. We'll certainly have, have a lot to say about that one. Uh, next, and it's kind of a two-part here. I have a C-Corp staffing business. Since COVID, I've been using my home office. The home is uh, in my, my in mine and my son's name. How can I account for the space uh, using as an office for a tax deduction? And number two, what is your advice for a small business owner on employing people who only have their ITIN number pending uh, the Social Security number? I'm curious as if we're going to come down on the same landing spot on that one. Not sure. We'll see. <laughs> The anticipation builds. What are they going to say? Uh, can you discuss the step-by-step -step process of completing a 1031 exchange? Next, I have a question regarding investing with my HSA. Does an HSA function like a Roth IRA in terms of paying UBITs, unrelated business income tax? In other words, if I invest my HSA in crowdfunding or syndication, for example, uh, will I have to pay UBIT? Next, can I write off a, uh, a loss selling my Bitcoin for with a $10,000 uh, loss. I bought at 26 and buy it right back at 16, getting into the wash sale rules there. My understanding from a tax perspective, an LLC tax as a C-Corp and a traditional C-Corp receive the same benefits such as medical reimbursement, administrative office, retirement plan, et cetera. Number one, can, I, can you explain the positions of the LLC tax as a C-Corp? Do I still need a president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, or just member managed? Number two, why would anybody form an LLC tax as a C-Corp over uh, a regular C-Corp? If there is no plan to take it public, why choose one over the other, cost to maintain, paperwork required, et cetera? And I think last, is it best to start an Airbnb business now or wait until the beginning of the tax year for uh, the beginning of the next year for tax purposes? I'm estimating, estimating two more weeks of getting it ready. December 1st is my goal. Some details, nothing major like a roof or air, air conditioner was needed uh, in 2022 to get it ready. Next year, I will do some major upgrades, but the house is actually looking pretty good. Super clean with new paint and beautiful terrazzo floors. I won't say that in Italian. <laughs> didn't, didn't buy any major tools or capital equipment. I didn't buy a 6,000-pound vehicle either. 
No income this year expected except for self, uh, Social Security retirement going to refinance in 2023. What do you think the best options are? Quite a bit there. All right. So before we begin, uh, just remember you can get through our YouTube. Subscribe on aba.link forward slash YouTube. And uh, we do have a whole YouTube channel with a lot of training videos and things like that, which again, we are towards the education side. So that'd be a great resource. We also have our podcast at andersonadvisors.com uh, podcasts. And lastly, we will have the, the replays for all this in your platinum portal. Opening question. Can you please explain the difference between an LLC, a C-Corp and an S-Corp? Can an LLC also be a C or an S-Corp? I understand that C-Corps and S-Corps are tax elections, but are they also a type of entity? What say you, Jeff? Welcome to Tax Turkey Tuesday. I've been waiting all day to say right? that. There you go. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we'll get LLC out of the way first. LLC is a legal entity. It is not a tax entity. When you create an LLC, if you don't tell the IRS how you want it to be taxed, it's going to depend on whether if you only have a single member, it's going to be disregarded to you. If it's got multiple members, it's going to become a partnership. If you want anything else, like an S corporation or a C corporation, you actually have to tell the IRS that. Make an election. Yeah. What else you got? So uh, to, to the second part of the question, yes, an LLC could be an S or a C corp, could be either one, depending on the election it makes. So as Jeff points out, it could be disregard, partnership, C corp, S corp. It's got a lot of flexibility. It's the bottom line. And if you don't do anything, it goes through those defaults. Disregard for one person, uh, partnership, if there's multiple uh, players in it, members in it. I think the confusion happens is that also at state common law, you have traditional C corps and S corps. And those really aren't any different than an LLC taxes a C or an S. They both have the same tax treatment. The only distinction between them is a C corporation, true well call C, true, a true C corporation, which would be a common law corporation. That's something that's not an LLC tax as a C, is it has stock and we can use something called 1244 stock loss. And we're going to talk about that later. Yep. Could come up later. Yeah. Yeah. There is another yep. question on this. Yep. So we'll, we'll get into more depth about that, but really there isn't a difference from a tax standpoint between the, the LLC tax as a C and a C corp. So you say you say there's no difference for tax. What about legally? Legally, what we're going to get into, and we and this is one of our future questions that we have here today, it's considered a little bit easier to run with the LLC because it doesn't have necessarily the requirements. Most states don't have as overbearing requirements for meetings and things like that. It's supposed to be a lot easier to run. We're going to learn that that's not necessarily a, a good thing. Uh, when we look at our another question, but there is, it is considered a little bit more simplistic with the LLC. And again, it is a state creation. So every, every state actually has different rules for how they, tra uh, they treat their LLC, but most of them are in conformity with each other. So let's say I form a corporation in one state and then move to another state. How easy is it to convert it to that other state if it's an LLC versus a corporation? Well, Conceptually, it's not all that difficult. You just go through the state. Each state will have its own rules on how right. they do that, that, right. that conversion from an LLC to a proper C-Corp. And not every state necessarily offers that. So you do have to look at the state. There is a great deal of flexibility as far as moving entities across the various states in our country. Um, but every now and then, you just really have to know the state, the state you're leaving from and the one you're going into, uh, what the rules are on that. Generally, it's the state you're going into that's going to control that situation. Uh, as you can imagine, if you look at some of them, well, California can be a little challenging uh, if you try and leave, uh, whereas they, they typically will allow anybody to come in. <laughs> you know, everybody can go into the black hole, but it's not can get out. You know, And just speaking of, of moving, it's usually not necessary. If I'm incorporated in, say, Kentucky and I move to Nevada, there's not necessarily reason to move my where I'm incorporated. Take, for example, national banks in this country, 99.9% .9 of them are incorporated in Delaware, yep. even though U.S. banks headquartered in uh, Minnesota, I believe. Yeah, Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Bank of America's headquartered in California and so forth. But they're all incorporated in Delaware because Delaware favors banks as far as the laws go. Yeah, a lot of your bigger, uh, especially if you have uh, trading stock, you're going to see your Delaware entities. But as Jeff said, you can you can have you can be set up in one state and actually live in another. We might have to foreign file if you are a w uh, receiving a W two income because you become an employee in that other state. 
but there's things that can be done. Certainly, you know, when, maybe it is easier to move it. Maybe you don't want to move it. You might go back and forth between the two states. I've had jobs where I went between uh, Nevada and Arizona, back and forth, et cetera. So um, sometimes that happens, you know, and and uh, maybe you're, you want your entity in both states and your employee considered an employee in both. So yeah, there's some flexibility out there. But if you ever got into the situation, really wanted to know what's going on, of course, a lot of this depends on what actually is going on in your world of investment. You know, if we would choose one option over the other, but for all intents and purposes, you can f- feel pretty much secure that the LLC taxes a C or an S is is primarily the same as a as a regular S corp or C corp. For an HSA, are the limits for contributions a monthly or annual amount on IRS.gov? The limit is listed as thirty two hundred for single and seventy two hundred for family. Now, I didn't get a chance to really check those numbers. I'm not sure those are actually up to date. No, I think it's, I want to say it's 3350 and 7700 for 2022. And it goes, I think it's going up fairly significantly in 2023. But to the question, those, the contribution limits are annual amounts. Mm-hmm. What some employers do who have employees is if they're going to fund the HSA for the employees, they may be doing this at the first of the year. And the reason for that is then that money is available to use for medical expenses as the year goes along. Very popular benefit to give to your your your, your employees and uh, to a deduction to the uh, the person paying for it. Yeah, it, it's so hard to take that medical deduction on Schedule A anymore because of the high standard deduction and then the limitations on the medical deduction. This is actually a nice benefit to have. You do need a high deductible health plan to go along with us. And I don't remember what the definition is of that. Over 1400 for an individual, 2800 for a family. You're talking about the deductible? Yep. Okay. <laughs> I looked that one up. <laughs> like Google. But what the HSA allows is if you're putting money into an HSA, it either comes out pre-tax, like through a 125 plan. Anyway, it, it reduces the amount of taxes withheld. And that includes Medicare, Social Security, uh, federal, and state. If your employer doesn't do a pre-tax, you still get to deduct it, but it gets deducted on your 1040. So whereas if you just try to put these payments on your uh, schedule, you're good chance you're not going to get to deduct any of them. Yeah, almost the, the word impossible comes to mind. You have to get over that. That's such a burden. You have to be itemizing to begin with. Not everybody's itemizing. And then you have to get over 7.5% of your AGI, as just pointing out. So uh, HSA is a nice option, I guess I would say. I, I think I calculated for me to be able to deduct a penny medical on my Schedule A, I'd pretty much have to die. And yep. then at that point, it doesn't benefit me anymore. No, not a whole lot. Yeah. Yeah, usually... You know, death and taxes. What do you yeah. want? They they walk hand in hand. <laughs> so, so hopefully that helps out with the uh, contributions. And yes, it is a an annual amount. I don't think one actually usually contributes monthly. They just write a check. And again, it it can be you as an individual putting into this as long as you have a high deductible plan. Yeah, if if you're involved in an HSA that you're contributing to through your employer, you may get to the end of the year and have not hit these limits. Most employers will allow you to put in a lump sum to hit the limits uh, so you can take advantage of that deduction. And where's that money go? It is an adjustment. It's above the line adjustment to your income. And any money you contribute, that's your money to pay for your medical bills, your future medical bills. Exactly. And we're going to learn maybe you could do some other things with it too on one of our future upcoming questions here in the next half hour. (laughs) All right. My accountant thinks I should switch from an S-Corp to a Schedule C, that's a sole proprietorship on your, your 1040, because my profits are below eighty dollars to $90,000, and the S-Corp is expensive, and I'm just one person, so I do not want to grow any bigger, and I'm happy with these sales. Uh, my question is, what is best for me, not the company? What, what happens if I switch? What is better for retirement and Social Security as I am 56 years old? Okay, let's, let's talk about a few things. First, the expense. If this is an LLC taxed as an S corporation, the filing fees with the state is, I don't, it's going to be the same regardless. Often, yeah. Often you're looking at the same amount. However, there are the states out there that have peculiar S corp rules. So you won't want to be aware of that. And I don't know what state we're talking about here, but I know that Jersey has special rules. 
Massachusetts, but usually Massachusetts, you have to have a quite a large amount of income. So I don't think that would be applicable at 80 to 90,000. Uh, California to avoid the $800, it's not going to matter. Yeah. You're going to pay the 800 regardless. You are going to pay for a tax return for the S corporation that you wouldn't have to pay for extra yeah. on the Schedule C. However, having done this for quite a while, there's some work to do to put that Schedule C together. So mm. it may cost your 1040 may be get a little more expensive. Yeah. And your S Corp run properly, uh, you know, you can take advantage of uh, like an accountable plan for reimbursement for an administrative office, mileage, things like that. You don't have to pay all uh, $80,000 to $90,000 as wage, whereas you would in Schedule C, it's going to all be subject to employment tax, 100% of it. Yes, you will get 50% of it back uh, from an adjustment again on your AGI. But your S Corp has things like the 288 corporate meetings and things like that that can help reduce mm-hmm. that 80 to 90, maybe realistically down by 20 grand. If we reduce 80,000 by 20 grand, we're looking at 60 grand, and that would have been money you got in your pocket for reimbursements. And now your reasonable age may only be 30,000. So it's difficult at 80 to 90 uh, to, for me to see where the S Corp's more expensive uh, than the Schedule C if it, if it takes advantage of all these things you know, like the accountable plan and, and corporate meetings. So if you have a health insurance plan for yourself that you are paying for, that should be paid for by the S corporation. It will save you a good deal of money. Let's talk about downside of if you take your LLC that's an S corporation and uh, revoke the S election to make it a Schedule C, well, there's a couple steps there. You have to revoke the election, mm-hmm. and then you have to file an 8832 to say it's a Schedule C now. It's not a corporation. But you cannot change back to a S corporation for five years. Uh, the other thing is if there are any, what is the word I'm looking for? Assets. Uh, Built-in gains? Yeah. If there's any uh, appreciated. assets. Appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciated assets. You may have to pay tax on that. Mm-hmm. Likely will have to pay tax on that. And, and it does, you know, we're kind of jumping as we just talked about one of the previous questions here. You know, if we're talking about an LLC taxes in us, it is, as Jeff pointed out, you're going to do the revocation letter to the IRS and then you're going to do an 8832 because that 8832 form is built. It's called the check the box form for LLCs only. But if you have a it rig- literally is called check the box. Form. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> you just check the box. But if it's a regular, you know, S corporation, then the revocation would turn it into a C corp. And we don't get a check the box. So uh, that is another factor here as well. We kind of jumped to the idea that it was an LLC, but I guess it doesn't have to be. And now you really have to just dissolve. I don't think you, you, you can't go from a corporate form. Okay, well, maybe some states will allow it. You have to check your state and they may allow you to, to transform from a corporation into a limited liability company, but that would be very state specific. Yeah, I don't think you want to do that. And, and this is going to make it more expensive to do because if it is a true S corporation that started out as a Inc, you're going to have to dissolve that entity. And then you're going to have to, you're going to want an LLC for your schedule C and that's going to cost you what about $1,500. Yeah, I would think. Yeah. So, so yeah, not, not to, to argue with your accountant, but you might want to kind of run through these things and see if it's really a better move or not. I would, suggest that probably if you're taking advantage of a accountable plan, which you cannot do on a Schedule C, if you're doing your corporate meetings, which you cannot do on a Schedule C, mm-hmm. then probably going to come out ahead, uh, staying in escort. And I wanted to address the um, about the Social Security. If you're worried about Social Security and you want to put more into it, just pay yourself more through the S-Corporation. Any payroll taxes you pay, like the other half of the Social Security tax, mm-hmm. that's a deduction to to the S corporation. So it lowers your income all around. I think for 80 or $90,000, I probably would have switched to an S corporation at this point. I don't think there's enough savings here to make it worthwhile, if any savings, uh, to change it back to a schedule C. Yeah, no, I don't see. Yeah, exactly. I would, I would keep it as an S. I think you got more potential problems. If it, like I said, if you have to dissolve because it's a C, it goes from S to C and then you dissolve. I think you're looking at far more problems and headaches. So I would probably just keep it. And, and you don't want to create a new LLC because you may have accounts and stuff tied to the old LLC. It may be merchant accounts. It may be bank accounts. Big headache. Huge headache. <laughs> yeah. When you get 
payments sent electronically to you to a, an account that doesn't exist anymore. So, mm-hmm. all right. Can you convert a personal vehicle into a business vehicle if you only u- if you use it only for business? What if you own only one vehicle? Can you deduct mileage and gas or anything else? So, personal vehicle into business. You can do that, but you have to actually contribute the vehicle to the business. It's got to be titled in the name of the business. And what if you only have one vehicle? Does that cause us any concerns? That causes a ton of concerns. <laughs> well, do tell, Jeff. <laughs> um, because what we don't want is a lot, if any, personal use of this vehicle. And why not? Well, for one thing, it lowers the amount of your deductions. You can't take any accelerated depreciation. That uh, You can't take bonus depreciation. So the solution to this is track your mileage and deduct mileage. Yeah. And if you did title this all the way over into your, your business and you only have the one vehicle and you do use it for personal use, that's taxable wages to you. So you got to watch out for that. Mm-hmm. And it does it does depend on the type of business you have. All these questions depend on what kind of business entity you are using. So if it is an S-Corp or a C-Corp, or as we're learning, an LLC taxes an S or C, you'd have an accountable plan reimbursement, and you could be reimbursed for mileage and things like that without titling it in the name of the business because you keep it in your personal name. You just get reimbursement. That's cash coming to you tax-free out of the S or C-Corp, and they get a deduction for it. That's probably as good as it gets. Your business gets a deduction, you get free cash in your pocket. And that's all because you kept it in your personal name. If you are one who drives a lot, the more you drive, the more mileage, the better this comes out. Because we have, what is our rate? 67 and a half, 67 cents a mile or 67 and a half for uh, end of 2022, I believe for reimbursement. Yeah, it's standards. up like four cents, I think. Yeah. It's quite a bit. It's, it's, it's up there. So the point being, if you had 10,000 miles, that's $6,700 of cash in your pocket for reimbursement and a deduction at the same time to your business if you keep it in your personal name, if it's a corporation and you use the accountable plan. So, And Toby often talks about the expenses of a car and a business are higher than in your name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to need commercial insurance because they're not going to insure in your name if, the, if yep. you don't own the car. Yep. Commercial insurance is more expensive. Also, I kind of feel like if you're in a bad accident, that where you're at fault. If it was in your name, you might be liable. But now by having it in the LLC or the business's name, you pulled both of you into the same. Yeah. And all your assets in your business. And that may sound counterintuitive because we like to use the business for asset protection. Mm-hmm. But you know, if you had a lot of assets in that business, they'd be exposed. Whereas typically, you know, your your personal insurance can't handles it if you're just driving personally. So and I tell often, you know, my colleagues here at Anderson and, and clients who ask this type of question, just getting back to the uh, uh, the expenses, that commercial insurance, I've had one client come back to me after we talked about this and the, the commercial costs were 400% more. Or excuse me, wow. four, four, I'm sorry, four times as much. That's, well, that yeah. would be 400. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Math is hard. Yeah, we're getting ready for it. I'm already checked out for Thanksgiving. So it's, but um yeah, I mean, it really is a, it's, it's something that you have to take into account. And, um, you know, now with all the other types of vehicles coming online, you know, who knows what the insurance commercial rates are going to be for that. So I don't typically recommend it putting it into business, but could you? Yes. Uh, if you only have one vehicle, you're going to be really, I, that's a really tough situation because we know you're using it for personal use. The IRS knows you're using it for personal use. It becomes an audit risk if you put 100%, even if you didn't use it personally, you're going to have to convince the IRS that you're not. And so I think that becomes kind of a, a, a something that would get their attention on a return, seeing that 100% business use when mm-hmm. they know you, you're marking that you don't have another car. So I do want to say that I said math is hard and I want to attribute that to Ian who says it's frequent, says that frequently. So <laughs> <laughs> Ian, and you put two and two together. <laughs> he does a fantastic job. And he has joined the group in Dutch uh, to answer questions as well here, it looks like. So we got Christos. Uh, so yeah, they're up to, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I guess we don't see the number of questions uh, answered yet here on ours. But anyway, uh, they're uh, busy typing away. I'm doing that often myself on the other side. So, oh, Ian, you. what did I do? I heard my name. Ian's calling you out. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned how math is hard. <laughs> and just wanted to give you credit for that one. Uh, 56 answers so far. So they're, they're, yeah, they're running through it. There we go. All Ian, right. Ian is math abilities. All right. 
Can I reduce my W-2 taxes from my job by owning a rental property? Well, that's a loaded question. Let's say you, Jeff. It depends. <laughs> that's a real depends. First of all, I think we want to ask, what do we mean by rental? Are we really talking rental or are we talking short-term rental? That might be part of the discussion, you think? Well, let's talk long-term rental first. Yep. Yeah, let's talk short-term rental first. Okay. <laughs> it's a shorter answer. So if you're materially participating in your short-term rental, it's not really a rental, it's a trader business. And yes, that losses from that could reduce your W-2 income. If, again, if you're materially participating, meaning you're doing everything or most everything. Uh, long-term rentals, we have a couple rules in play and it's called Section 469 Passive Activity Loss Rules. Long-term rentals are a passive activity. Normally, you cannot deduct passive losses against active income. There is an exception. Tell us about the exception. There's one exception depending on your adjusted gross income. And, and people ask me often what AGI is. It's kind of a culmination of all your income with a few adjustments. Like we talked about earlier, the HSA contributions, maybe you put into a retirement plan, like a traditional IRA that would give you a deduction. Those are all called adjustments. And so we we impact our AGI with those adjustments and, and we get this AGI. And if our AGI is 100,000 or less, then the IRS would let us take $25,000 of passive losses against right. it. So that works really well. That's a quarter of your income at that point. So that that they're uh, having a long-term rental and I don't really care if I'm if it's passive or not, because 25,000 would be a really great deal perhaps. But as your AGI goes from 100,000 up to 150,000, we slowly evaporate or phase out that 25,000. So each $2 of increase of income, you lose $1 of the 25,000. So by the time you get to 150,000 AGI, it's all gone. And we get no deduction for that passive. So my gross income that has been adjusted, if that's $100,002, Mm-hmm. My, I'm only going to be able to deduct $24,999. That's correct. Exactly. So we wouldn't get the full $25,000, but you'd get very close to it, just $2 off. So that is where rental property could help your W-2s if we are all in the passive world. But because there's passive, there must be something else. And we call that non-passive or active. What about those rules? Non-passive or active? Yeah. For a long-term rental under 469? It's a non-passive rental for the rep status? Yes. Real estate professional. Okay. Exactly. Sorry, a little slow. <laughs> Real estate professional is a two-pronged rule. They always call it two-pronged, but I kind of feel like it's three-pronged. It's two plus. <laughs> it's a two-pronged rule. Uh, the first rule says you have to materially participate in real estate businesses that you own, what, 5% or more? Yes. And have 750 hours in those those businesses. Mm-hmm. And that can include your rental property. The second test is you have to materially participate in your rental business. In each rental activity. In each rental activity. Which is key for each rental property. And we're basically talking the 500-hour test at this point, right? Correct. Most often. So if I got five properties and I have a W-2 job, I can guarantee you that I do not have 2,500 hours in that those five properties cumulative. So there is what's called an aggregation election that lets you combine all those properties into one activity for this test in particular Mm -hmm. to meet the hours. So now I only have to have 500 hours in all my properties now that I've aggregated them. A couple things happen is you can't free up passive losses when you sell one. Uh, You still have to recognize a gain or loss on that property. But what else? Anything else important? Well, the, those hours for the 750 have to be, if it's a married couple, one only one spouse, or I'm sorry, one spouse has to obtain that status of real estate professional. Yeah, that's a good so point. Really, real estate professional status has two prongs. It does. It's it's the over 750 hours in a real estate trader business as designated under 469. And the IRS actually goes out under 469C7C and lists those 11 types of businesses that you specifically can work in. And then you can um, also, you have, I'm sorry, you have to put over 50% of all your time into those real estate trader businesses as opposed to uh, any other type of business. The I think we're often, but you have to materially participate. And that's really where people get caught. And the material participation rules, basically you have to run it. You can't have a third-party property manager. Mm. And there you can use both spouses. If Again, if it's married, filing joint, both spouses can add that material participation 
to that 500 hours. There are seven different tests, but we go with a 500 hour test most often, uh, but that there are other tests. That's just kind of the easiest to, to talk about. And you can, as Jeff points out, you can aggregate them all into one pile, but there are there's give and take to that. And I don't recommend doing that until you absolutely have to in order to meet your real estate professional status. But you do have to materially participate in each of those rental properties themselves too. So to give you an example, because you you did mention the uh, more than 50% of your, more than half of your time, and they call it what, service time? More yes. than half your service Personal time. Personal service time, yeah. So like in this case, if you're working full-time, let's say 2,000 hours, I know full-time is 2080, but 2,000 hours, that means you have to have 2,001 hours in real estate activities. So the only time this isn't really a problem is if you have that W-2 job in a business that you own and you're earning that many hours. So then this is kind of moot because they- Exactly. And it's in a real estate trader business. So one of those 11 that they list out there. Other than that, if you have a regular W-2 job, it's very difficult to meet that status. And the IRSs and the tax courts are going to be skeptical. Uh, you're going to have an uphill battle. And that's it's one of those unfortunate parts of that. As I tell people on the code, you can check all the boxes. It doesn't mean you're going to get it. Right. You have to really be able to prove it, prove you're putting more time than anybody else and prove what their hours were. I've read cases there's a very prominent case out there in regards to this where uh, the individual had, I think it was a, a condo in, in a big building. He couldn't prove that he put more time into that because he didn't know how much time the custodians within that building had spent on it. And because he couldn't say how much time they put on, the courts felt, well, it's more it's reasonable that they put more time in. Therefore, the deduction was, the status was disallowed. And so you really have to track not only your time, but everybody else's who touches the property. There's uh, several areas. This is one. Trader status is one. There's a couple others where the courts are landing all over the place. Yeah. And sometimes it just matters who you get as a judge if you have to go to tax court. It always matters who you get as a judge and what kind of day they're having. You know, <laughs> and your attorney <laughs> and what kind of day they're having. <laughs> and if you decide to defend yourself. No, yeah. No, no, don't ever do that. No. <laughs> It's what we call minced meat right there. <laughs> All right. So back to the original question. Can I reduce my W-2 taxes by uh, owning a rental property? It, it's it's plausible, you know, but you're going to have to be within these parameters, short-term rental or long-term rental and, and meet the criteria for it. Mm-hmm. All right. Next. Uh, number one, I have a C-Corp staffing business. Since COVID, I've been using my home office. My home is uh, is mine and my son in, in my mine and my son's name. How can I account for the space using an office for a tax deduction or reduction? Any thoughts on that? Hmm. I have an issue where this house property is jointly owned. Okay. So, I mean, what do you think? Does he only own half this property? Kind of depends on where it's at, or well, I guess because it's not a married couple, so it would it would it, be it, it, community yeah. property rules wouldn't come and apply. I wouldn't think. No, so if he owned this house in its entirety or with his spouse, easy argument of reimbursing you for the administrative office, assuming it's being used exclusively for the corporation. But I'm not so sure about with his son owning. Yeah, joint ownership, it it creates kind of a, a potential hiccup here because he owns half of that room where the office is as well. Mm -hmm. You can, like I said in the earlier question, you can check the boxes of using it, so, that room solely for your C-Corp and exclusively um, and on a regular basis. But again, it's not all your home. So I love my kids, but I ain't putting their name on my house. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I haven't seen where the IRS has actually made it. Uh, I'm sure in the number of cases that have come up where they've actually made a decision about that, but I honestly don't know off the top of my head. But I suspect that you would not be able because it's probably 50-50. And I would think that um, you would probably need over 50%. Yeah, I, I think at best, you're going to get to deduct half of what you normally would get to deduct. And we could be wrong about this. I think at worst, you get no deduction. Yeah, I would go along those lines. Uh, b- between the two parameters, uh, at, at best, 50%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless you had some kind of agreement in there that, hey, that, that office area is in my, so to speak, part of the house and... There's another office that my son uses. Maybe you have that argument. Um, I, I think that'd be a little weak, but 
Are there types of ownership that changes this argument, like joint tenancy with right of survivorship or? I don't see it being applicable until that right of survivorship takes over, mm. you know, because you're still 50-50 in a sense. Yeah. So uh, I haven't seen that, you know, if you have, I, I think you could, you know, again, if you have some way of reasonably breaking it out, you probably could get by, but I, under audit, they may say, uh, you know, they may uh, discredit the deduction a little bit. I don't know. It's, it, it's um, yeah, if, I, I guess we could probably research it a little bit yeah. more, you know, if you want. This to, wouldn't be a bad question for Platinum. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to bring it up just in case, because it is a really good question. It hits to these details. So uh, we can we can take a bigger look at that, or deeper look at it. But what about question two? What is your advice for a small business owner on employing people who only have an ITIN number pending getting their social security number? Elliot knew the answer to this. I did not. And I disagreed with him and looked it up. And <laughs> by golly, he was right. Well, <laughs> the Google was right again. So what I was able to find on this is that uh, basically you're not allowed to have people with an ITIN as employees. They have to have a social security number, uh, be registered in the U.S. to be here. Now, it doesn't mean if, if they have a work uh, visa, well, then that's a different set of rules. And I'm not going to get into whether they have an ITIN or whatnot. Uh, work visa allows them to work. Well, but flat out from what I was reading is you can't hire people with ITINs. They are not eligible to work in the United States. Once they are eligible to work in the United States, they have to apply for a social security number. There we go. So I would think that may also apply to the work visas. Okay. And that might be part of the application for that work visa that they meet this criteria, perhaps. Uh, not really familiar. We don't do a lot of uh, immigration, so I don't know the ins and outs of that. But I do know, like Jeff said, that you know from what we've seen that uh, you're not allowed to have an employee without a social security number. Yeah, people with ITINs can still invest within the United States. Like they can come from Juarez or Vancouver and buy property in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, and that's okay. But also, typically, if they don't have a right to either green card or some type of work permit, they're also required to leave the United States every so often. Yes. So that makes it a little hard to employ these people also. In the end, I would recommend talking to your immigration attorney that's working with these these uh, individuals or your own representative. Immigration attorney will probably have a far better idea of exactly the, the boundaries. Uh, but as, as a general rule, no, you're not allowed to employ them. Can you discuss the step-by-step -step process of completing a 1031 exchange? And there's not too many there, right? <laughs> no. So we talked about this a little bit beforehand, and it's one that often... Jeff and I bring up, especially in our our tax hour that we do, get a qualified intermediary, a QI. You got you got to have that. Okay, that's the number one. I wouldn't even consider this without that. Uh, that's your number one step. Then it kind of gets into well, you have some options on things. Mm -hmm. I think you decide if you want to do a regular what I'll call forward ten thirty one or a reverse. Any idea the difference between those? Uh, reverse ten thirty one is just what it sounds like. Well, let's talk about the forward ten thirty one. Forward 1031 is you sell a house and then you replace it. Yep. Relinquish property. Yep. The reverse 1031 is you buy the new house first and then you sell the old property. I like the reverse 1031, but it's very expensive to do because at some point in time, you're going to have two mortgages. Now, when the market was really hot, when it was a buyer's market, the reverse mortgage or the reverse 1031 actually made more sense. It's about all you could do. Yeah, because what the problem people were having was I sell my house, I go out and find, look for a house, and you can identify up to five houses for your 1031 exchange, and bam, 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 all five of them Close. were sold out from under me. Yeah, it was, it was a real challenge for, we'd hear this over and over, you know, like two years ago, 12 months ago even, so since the buyer's market has cooled off quite a bit, still an expensive market, but uh, we're not dealing with some of the craziness we were before. The forward 1031 kind of makes more sense because keep in mind, you cannot touch the cash. Uh, that's why you need to qualify the intermediary and make sure it's somebody who knows what they're talking about. Ask them lots of questions. Exactly. Because they're going to be the person that keeps you out of trouble. Yep. I sell my house to Elliot 
Elliot pays the intermediary. All the money goes to them. When I go to buy my next house, the replacement property, the intermediary pays for it with the money that I had. Uh, you also need to uh, cover any loans, correct? Mm -hmm. So if I had an old loan on my old property, I need to have a new loan or loan on my new property. Yep. Or at least have put enough additional cash in to make up for that difference. Correct. Exactly right. So again, just kind of start first get that qualified intermediary. Number two, determine if you want to do a, a I guess we'll call it a forward 1031 or regular 1031, or do you want to do a reverse? Make sure you don't touch the money. And then you know, you have 45 days. It's the first step of determining what you want for that relinquished property or what property you're going to sell in the case of a reverse. And then we have to have it all done in a, in a, in a total time frame of 180 days that starts from the beginning of where we started the process. Yep. So day one, we start the process. We sold or we bought a house, 45 days to get the replacement or which one we're going to sell. Mm -hmm. And then 180 total from that first day to get this all wrapped up. Right. So you want to make sure it's moving along. That's another thing that your qualified intermediary can assist with, get, keeping the process moving along, uh, you know, and help with any challenges that are uh, coming up, but don't touch that cash. So then we get to our 180, we've closed out, then you'll get the property, but the same title rule becomes a real important issue here. However you sold it, if you sold it in your ABC LLC, you have to pick up that property in the same title, ABC LLC, and you can't change tax statuses. So if it was disregarded, keep it disregarded. If it was a partnership, keep it a partnership, so on and so forth. And the general rule of thumb, um, we talk about Section 121. Well, what Section 121 used to be like in the 90s and earlier was the old rule that if I sell my primary residence, mm -hmm. I don't have to pay taxes as long as I buy something more expensive. Exactly. Kind of the same rule for the 1031. You need to put in to your new property as much as you sold the old property for. Yeah, as much or more. So you really want to buy a more expensive property. Let's say the the, the sales price for what you relinquished was 500, pick up one for 550. And if you gave up, if you if you had debt of 200,000, that's going to be released from the sale. Well, then you want to pick up debt of more on that new property of say 250. Mm -hmm. You meet those criteria, you're going to get your 100% deferral on it. And you can, you can buy multiple properties. I wouldn't go crazy uh, about how many I get, but mm -hmm. Uh, I've seen clients do five, six, seven properties for to replace one. Yep. There are some limits as far as pricing and all that and, and, and ratios, but yes, you can do that. So let's talk about boot. Yes. I sold my house, bought a new house, but I got $10,000 cash back. My total gain that I'm deferring is about $100,000. It's not now. <laughs> but but I got what happens with that ten that boot that he's talking about that cash that is the amount you're going to get taxed on you can't defer that amount and so that's why it's critical that you're buying a more expensive house you're picking up more debt than you get you unloaded that's what keeps you from getting boot and, and of course cash that's put in by the other party etc um, because if boot boot equals the amount typically that's the amount of the, of your gain that's going to be taxable right then subject to depreciation recapture. And we got that. Why? Because this, we if we started this whole process, this building that you're getting rid of or going to pick up, they all have to be using a trader business. So we're not talking about your personal residence. Mm -hmm. Anything else we'd add to that process? Nope. All right. I have a question regarding investing with my HSA. Does an HSA function like a Roth IRA in terms of paying UBIT? In other words, if I invest my HSA in a crowdfunding or syndication, for example, realtymogul.com, will I have to pay UBIT? It's well, good. well, no, I was gonna say the Roth IRA is actually a decent comparison. Uh, you can invest in things, uh, you're not going to be taxed on the income or the gain, well, with one exception. And the reason for that is, unlike the Roth IRA, they're figuring any money that comes out of this HSA is going to be used for medical expenses, mm -hmm. so they're not going to tax any gain. And talking about an HSA in general, if you pull money out and don't use it for medical expenses, that money is taxable. That's ordinary income. Now, what's the what's the area that he mentions here that where you could get hit with tax? The UBIT, unrelated UBIT. business income tax. And uh, that means that you've basically gone into something that has kind of an operational business behind it. Mm -hmm. The whole thing behind these these are really trusts by the background and background, you know, where they came from, the IRAs and HSAs. 
you can't the 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 code is written so that you don't have an un, uh, unfair playing field and, and to keep it even, we don't want you investing or the code doesn't want you investing in operational businesses because they may not have to pay tax. And if that's the case, then our other private businesses out there will suffer because you're, they're at a disadvantage. They have to pay tax. McDonald's has to pay tax on the hamburgers or Happy Meals or whatever. So to, to equal the, the the playing field or level it, uh, the IRS hits this UBIT, and UBIT is uh, it's a skyrocket up the tax brackets. It might be, I believe, it does run along the regular tax brackets as an individual. It's called we call it trust. It's a trust tax brackets, but it goes up really fast. So maybe it takes me five hundred thousand dollars of income to reach the 37 percent tax bracket, but it takes all of about ten dollars in a, in a, with UBIT to get up there. I mean, it takes very little income, maybe fifteen thousand, and I'm already at a very high tax bracket. So it rises really quick. And the idea is to punish people to keep them from investing in these kind of an, uh, businesses within uh, a protected field like an HSA or a Roth. So they mentioned crowdfunding and syndications. And again, that's a it depends answer. It is. Because if you're investing in real estate rental, like your, your syndication or even your crowdfunding is an apartment complex, that's not going to be subject to UBIT because that's not trader business income. Correct. However, if if you're, uh, what's some of the syndications I've seen lately, like uh, Fetch is one that they were syndicating. And if some of you probably know what Fetch is, or building uh, low-income properties, that's going to be a trader business, and that's going to be subject to UBIT. Um, and it's possible you may have operational income within a say a real estate syndication mm-hmm. that you may be subject to UBIT at least in part. Yeah. And also we have a, what is a subset of UBIT. We have, um, uh, if they use debt, if they use debt in the purchase, that also creates a UBIT situation. And I can't remember our acronym. Was it U- UDFI? Yeah. Unrelated debt financed income. There it is. <laughs> and that just says that if debt was used to purchase part of this, well, then guess what? You're going to get hit with the UBIT tax rates. So uh, if debt is on that syndication, that could be a problem. So if if I invested it in the syndication that's just real estate uh, rental, my apartment complex, I'm not going to get hit with UBIT. But if they got a mortgage to buy, build that yep. or buy it, then I could be subject to UDIF. Yep, exactly. So you need to be very careful the investments that you're going into. And to your question, yes, it's subject to your your HSA is subject to UBIT. A couple cautions with with investing in syndications and stuff like that. Keep in mind that this HSA is designed to be for your medical expenses. If you invest in a real estate syndication, those typically run four to five years so that money's going to be locked up in a hard asset that you can't get to. So just a little caution as to what you're investing in. Very good point. Yeah, got it. If you need it for your medical, you want to make sure it's a, it's available for your medical. Don't get sick. Yeah, there you go. Better yet. All right. Uh, can I write off a loss selling my Bitcoin well, with ten thousand? My Bitcoin loss with ten thousands. I bought it at twenty six thousand and buy it right back at sixteen thousand. So I think we're getting to the wash sale rules that are so popular lately. What about that in your crypto? For the moment, there are no wash sale rules with cryptocurrency, virtual currency, whatever you want to call it. So if I sell today and recognize that six or $10,000 loss, I can buy it back within minutes. Yeah, no, no problem with that. And the loss is not disallowed. What the wash rules say that is like for if for securities, I, I bought Boeing and I had a big loss on it. And so I sold it to get the loss and then I bought it back. That's not allowed. Um, well, it's not allowed for you to recognize the loss on that. You got to wait 30 days. You got to wait 30 days uh, before you buy back that security. Um, now, I've heard rumor that this is going to change. As far as crypto? As far as crypto. It could be, you know, a lot of rumors out there. Um <laughs> Especially with crypto. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was it was in the 15s just the other day when I was looking. Now, you know. Uh, left is always still hovering around 16. No. But it did take a pretty big hit because it was over 22 weeks ago. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's struggling. 
And with this new fiasco, they're wondering about some of the other related, you know, it's kind of a dominoes effect. And are we waiting to see the next disaster in, in the crypto area? But good news, the former chairman or CEO of Enron is going to fix FTX. There we go. No, actually, he was the CEO during uh, Enron's uh, bankruptcy. And trying to get got it out of it. Yeah. But it looked like a good a number of the assets were used for uh, properties in the Bahamas. So that's, you know, there you go. You got hard assets there, real estate. That's good. <laughs> but yes, you can go ahead and take this loss, buy right back. Don't have, at least currently, don't have to worry about the, the watch sale rules. All right. My understanding from a tax perspective is uh, an LLC tax as a C-Corp and a traditional C-Corp receive the same benefits such as medical reimbursement, administrative office, retirement plans, et cetera. Number one, can you explain the positions in the LLC tax as a C-Corp? Do I still need a president, vice president, treasurer, secretary, or just member managed? Let's just start there. huh? So those positions are usually required by state law has nothing to do with how they're taxed. It has to do with how they're formed. And LLCs typically go say, you have to have members and managers or member managers. Mm -hmm. The corporation, I know in my corporation, some of, the, some of these states require, like you said, a president, vice president, treasurer, treasurer. secretary, and you see the pers same person listed on every single line. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's gonna be determined at the state level. You can have a president in all these positions if with an LLC corp, but you're not required to do that right. in any place that I'm aware of. Exactly. And that kind of gets back to our previous question, talking about you know complexity or whatnot. Usually LLC is considered a little bit more flexible, but you could set up a regular traditional board and have these these officer, traditional officer uh uh positions, but you're not required to. You could just say hey, it's a manager. You know, that's your officer and and act accordingly. All right. Why would anyone form an LLC tax as a C-Corp over uh, a, a regular C-Corp, we'll call it, uh, if there's no plan to take it public or why choose one over the other, cost maintaining paperwork, et cetera? Go ahead. As we mentioned earlier, we alluded to, if you have what I'll call the true C-Corp, the regular C-Corp, it does have stock and it can take advantage of a 1244 stock loss, which basically says if you're single or married, finding joints, 50 or 100,000. Uh, that you could take as a loss against of ordinary income on your return should your investment in your C-Corp fail and you have the stock loss. LLC, even though we can mirror it towards an LLC tax as a C-Corp and run very much like a C-Corp, it doesn't have stock. It has units as an LLC. So uh, the, the 1244 does not extend to your LLC tax as a C-Corp. So that's kind of the major difference between the two. So our... And they're asking, why would anybody choose an LLC tax as a corp? Are LLCs typically cheaper and or easier to form? Yeah, easier to form, uh, less criteria behind it. You know, uh, like a C-Corp is required to have certain meetings, et cetera. You don't necessarily have that with the LLC. But as I alluded to earlier, that's not necessarily a good thing. You want to have those meetings. You want to show that you're operating this business and taking control of things and and uh, being responsible with having meetings. So while the complexity might be a little bit lax for the LLC, usually the, the things that you don't have to do, you want to do just to show corporate formality. Are the, I think I asked this earlier, but I'll ask it again. Is the liability different from one to the other? Not really, because as, 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 a, as a shareholder in a C-Corp, you just lose your investment. As an uh, LLC member, which is the owner of an LLC, you just lose your investment typically. Now, as an officer, of course, if you do something abusive, like go out and buy $121 million of Bahama property, um, you're going to get you're, you're liable, you know, egregious acts probably, you know, break through the protections for officers under any of these. Mm -hmm. um, and so you do something really bad, you're still going to be held liable. Uh, as far as paperwork, again, yeah, just typically it's often thought you'll, the thing you're going to find online is that they just say LLCs, again, are easier to run, uh, less requirements, et cetera, uh, less red tape, it's, and so on and so forth. But some of that red tape having meetings, again, probably a good idea. So I don't, I don't really look at that as a, as a plus or a minus. On that. And if you're a C-Corp or LLC tax as a C-Corp, you can change to any other kind of entity you want. I would say that, yeah, we touched on that earlier. I think that is, you know, I'd never really thought about that really until the day when we were at, we were answering that earlier question. As far as that, you can 
do your S revocation, or, or sorry, you can take from a C and, and, and it will be a dissolution, but you could turn it into a regular LLC, disregarded or partnership, et cetera. You could also make it an S corporation. Yes. Yep. Whereas By filling out one piece of paper. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's two pieces. Yeah. Well, okay. But very, very simple there. And so that would be one thing. Now, it doesn't mean there wouldn't be tax consequences because you are going from a corporate to a non-corporate. But the point is that you could. And so that that is something, of course, now you have to look into the states and what their rules are for that. Next, is it best to start an, a new Airbnb, we'll call it short-term rental business now, or wait until the beginning of the year for tax purposes? I'm estimating two more weeks of getting it ready. December 1st is my goal. Uh, we got some background here. Nothing major like a roof or air, air conditioner uh, was needed in 2022 to get it ready. Next year, I will do some major upgrades, but the house is actually looking pretty good. Super clean, new paint, and beautiful terraza floors. Didn't buy any major tools or capital equipment. I didn't buy a 6,000 plus pound vehicle either. No income this year except Social Security retirement. Going to refinance in 2023. What do you think is the best option? Okay, let's start off with the basic question of, do I want to wait till next year? If you want to start running this out as a short-term rental, that's fine. And then you go ahead and establish that it's a short-term rental. But I kind of feel like what he's getting at is the cold cost segregation question. Because we always get that question. Yeah. And that's kind of what the hint I got. Hey, should I be, you know, Anderson, should I be doing this major deduction, getting that loss this year, or should I just push it off to next year? And what's that going to depend on? That's going to depend on your other income. And you basically said, oh, you have a social security income right now. Exactly. I'm assuming you got lots of other assets because you bought this property, this beautiful property with the what kind of floors? Oh. <laughs> so I know you don't need to do a cost segregation. It's it's not going to help you unless you're running this property out for a lot of money, uh, like it's a beachfront property and a prime area or something like that, and you're getting ten thousand a week for it. But otherwise, I don't do cost segregation on it this year, and maybe not next year, depending on uh, what my income looks like for next year. Uh, and that decision for 2023 doesn't have to be made until 2024. Yeah. So we got some time on that. It's all going to come down to, I, I think, the, the the major factor here is what is your level of income to, in totality? And you mentioned it's just the Social Security. Um, so I don't know that, you know, doing a cost seg and taking bonus depreciation, we're looking at a really big deduction for maybe not all that much income, you know, compared to, you know, 300, 400,000 or something like that. So that would be my biggest decision maker, how much income we have coming in. And if it's not that much, I wouldn't go through the added cost of a cost seg or mm-hmm. cost depreciation. Maybe depending on the numbers, again, like a, Jeff brings up a good point. Well, if this Airbnb makes a ton of money and it makes more than even your your retirement that you're getting, which is, is, is plausible, well then maybe, yeah, maybe we do. But it gets down to what Toby's golden rule, calculate, calculate, calculate. And so if we have an idea I would find it hard to believe, though, in two weeks of December or whatever it is, three weeks of rainy in December, you're going to get all that much income. Yeah, I agree. Um, but if going back to if this property is make a lot of money, the other problem that presents is it's going to make your Social Security taxable. More of it taxable, higher percentage. Yeah. Up to possibly 85% of your Social Security. So at that point, I think it becomes a different beast. Different beast. Um, the other thing I might consider doing if this is me is just holding back on that cost segregation. If there's any possibility of me getting a windfall in, in something else. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, in a future year, hold off on that. Don't blow it now. And when we only have two weeks, you know, I would wait to 2023 more than likely. That's probably your conventional wisdom there. Wait till 2023. But again, we don't, we don't have all the, you know, I mean, you've given, you've given us a good deal of income or information here, but we don't know exactly uh, how much income you have coming in, what to expect from the, the Airbnb. But I, I would say probably you're looking at, I would conserve it or save that cost seg for potentially 2023. Yeah, I think both Elliot and my guts say um, you don't use it in 2022. Yep. Very good. All right. And that's it for our questions. Again, uh, please submit more questions. That's what we choose the pool of questions for. And you can do that through Tax Tuesday at AndersonAdvisors.com or visit us at AndersonAdvisors.com. Other ways to, to reach out to us, the YouTube, subscribe on our YouTube at aba.link uh, YouTube. 
our podcast, AndersonAdvisors.com podcast, and our replays on the Platinum Portal. I just want to thank our supporting staff behind the scenes, uh, doing all the questions. We got uh, who we got out there? We got uh, Christos, Dana, Dutch, Ian, mm-hmm. Kira, Pio, Troy, of course, the regular staff running the show, Ander, Jennifer, Matthew, and um, I think that's it for our team here today. So thank you all for joining us. We appreciate it. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. We went over so, an hour. Toby's going to be so disappointed in yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, we were a little bit short last time, so I added another question this time. That was my fault. Uh, have a wonderful and safe Thanksgiving, and just make sure you have something to be thankful about. Yeah, and be safe. And again, thank you, and join us again in two weeks. We'll have, I think we have Toby back, yes? Toby should be back. Thank goodness. <laughs> Everyone have a good day. Thanks, Elliot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 